0: I hope you're all warmed up and ready to go this morning. I'm excited to open up God's word and investigate. This is a story I really like. Now, I'll give you some information this morning. My wife tells me that I'm not very kind to customer service representatives on the phone. She's right, I'm working on it. Uh, And it's not intentional, I'm not trying to be rude. It's just by the time I call them usually, there's a problem, right? And you try not to blame somebody on the phone. And if you're on the other end of the phone, I'm sorry if you ever call me or talk to me. I'm not trying to be rude. Apparently I'm, I have a, a problem understanding when I get a little upset on the phone. I'm not mean, I'm not mean. Let's just, let's just say that. But she says I sound edgy. So the thing is though, in a situation like that, there is a little bit of a power differential that's going on there, right? A, a mismatch, if you will. Certainly the person on the other end of the line, because they work for a company, could hold some leverage uh, in that situation. They can change the price on me, say, hey, we're not going to keep you as a customer anymore. But by and large, there are some restrictions if you're on the other end of the line. You've got to be kind and polite. On, on my end of the line, it's very easy uh, to misuse the power that I have and overstep my bounds instead of being kind and polite to be rude or even a jerk right? I I hope I don't venture into that territory, but I think my wife's right. She's right about a whole lot of things. You can tell her I said that. But here's the thing, right? I, I should show kindness. I need to show kindness. This is something I'm trying to work on when I call people and have a customer service complaint or issue. If I've committed myself to Jesus Christ, I should be showing kindness, or at least loving kindness, love in some way. This is something that should come out of me. God is good, and God's goodness is expressed in holiness and love. This morning, we're not going to talk about the holiness part, but the love part should be evidenced in somebody who says, yes, I'm with God. Yes, I follow Jesus Christ and should be being made in the image of Christ. So love should come out of me. That's what should be happening. And this the love we're going to talk about this morning is, is godly, real love. This is real love, strong love, love that reaches through life's difficulties and says, you matter, you, value, you are valued. And we read it in scripture. We read that God is love. We hear it. We tell it to one another. We hear it even outside of church context. Well, God is love. We're told, if you want to know the very definition of love, God is love. He's not like love. He's not similar to love. He's not a component of love. God is love. But is that your experience? Have you experienced God's love? That's what we're talking about today. And I think we see it. We're going to look at 2 Samuel 9. We heard the whole text. If you're following along, that's where I'd encourage you to stay. We're looking at Second Samuel 9, and you're going to see we're working on a, a story that's working at this level, but I hope you don't miss that it's actually working at this level too. God's love for us. We're seeing it evidenced in a human-to-human relationship what should be happening from God to us this morning. God's love exhibited. So Second Samuel 9, let's just read verse 3. We kind of got introduced, as we heard the scripture this morning, to a, a few characters. We've met King David before as we've been studying uh, 1 Samuel. Now we're jumping into 2 Samuel. And then we'll round out this whole sermon series next week. Uh, we met this person named Ziba, who's probably sort of the caretaker of Saul's estate that's still left around. Because Saul is dead by this point in our story. And then we've, we meet Mephibosheth this morning. Say that five times fast after the service. So 2 Samuel nine. Three, the king, this is David, the king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. And we can notice right away that the king is on the lookout for the lost here, for somebody who is Unable to be found at this point. He doesn't know he exists, but he's out there somewhere. Is there anybody left? The king is on the lookout. That might not surprise us if we put ourselves in this ancient world. What should surprise us is that he wants to show kindness. Because the long and short of it is that ancient kings kill rivals. That's what they did. If somebody new took over and a new dynasty was in power they'd want to get rid of the old dynasty, and they'd often kill the whole family line and anybody loyal to the family line to make sure there's no threat to the throne. But in this case, he says, is there anybody left I can show God's kindness to? Why is David showing kindness? That's unexpected. We should be surprised by that in the text. And so if you look at, and it'll come up on the screen, 1 Samuel 20 Starting at verse 14, this is actually uh, Jonathan talking to David, and he says, But show me your unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. And verse 42 says, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. They made a covenant together. And the word that we're encountering in both that instance and here. Kindness. Some of your translations have loving kindness. It's this Hebrew word chesed, which is a very strong word for love. Loving kindness and steadfast love are often the ways that this gets translated. It's used over 250 times in the Old Testament as really a, a strong and very choice word for love. Typically God's love for us. And it's a covenant type of love. It's rooted in that depth of relationship that says, I'm committed to you. Are you committed to me? It's that kind of a a relationship, family commitments. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. Or we even use covenant in marriage relationships, even today. I'm committed in better and worse, sickness and health, till death do us part. We both commit to that in a marriage, for instance. That's the kind of love that we're looking at here. David made a covenant with Jonathan. I'm gonna stand by this through thick and thin, no matter what happens, I will show this loving kindness to you. And David shows this kindness Why? Because he's a man of character, he's a man of virtue, and he's a man of his word. And don't we want to be that kind of a person? People of character, of virtue, of our word. If I say it, you trust me. If you say it, I trust you. That's who we should be. David is that man, at least at this stage. Things will turn eventually in his life. But at this stage, that's all we're looking at. And what's interesting to look at, Eugene Peterson comments on this particular passage. He says, at the time when David and Jonathan made a friendship covenant, Neither of them knew which of them would end up king of Israel. What they promised each other, though, was that whoever ended up as king, love, not power, would characterize their relationship. Love, not vengeance. Love, not expedience. This commitment goes through whatever is going to come their way. And we see then in the story that plays out with Saul and with David and Jonathan, Saul is eventually rejected as king. His dynasty is rejected. He is rejected as king. God just plain lifts his hands off. He says, enough, Saul, enough. My hand is off of you. And Saul kind of meets his own end that way. And in the midst of God taking his hands off Saul, he raises up David, who's characterized as a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? That David's a man after God's own heart. We're seeing it evidenced here. What it means is that when we see David, we should see a visible image of God's love and faithfulness in action. David should illustrate on ground level who God is. That's what it means. He's a man after God's own heart. His heart beats like God's heart. And he's showing that. And his actions towards Mephibosheth demonstrate this. And we could stop the sermon right there, probably, because we could say we should all be like David and show this loving kindness to those around us. And I think that'd be easy. But, but I think what would be worthwhile this morning is to actually flip the conversation a little bit and say, how did Mephibosheth receive this love? Yes, put yourself in David's position. That's good. We all should show loving kindness. Don't miss that. But how do we receive it? Mephibosheth had to receive it. How did he receive David's actions? Well, you can see that there's fear. So if we go back to the text, 2 Samuel 9, we'll go to verses 6 and 7. Mephibosheth has been called in. And it says, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, don't be for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul and you will always eat at my table he shows him kindness Mephibosheth so we catch the relationship he's Jonathan's son he's King Saul's grandson he's the last one left over of that whole family line and he has a disability It says that explicitly in text on a couple of occasions. If you read 2 Samuel 4.4, you find out how that happened. Uh, It's a parenthetical thought. It says, Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, that they were dead. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. We can't possibly, because the text doesn't give it to us, we can't possibly surmise all the reasons that Mephibosheth might have been afraid. And so we don't want to venture too far out on that, but we can probably guess a couple of things. Uh, One is, kings kill rivals. He probably had reason to fear in that sense. Why is David searching me out now? I'm the last one left. He must have figured it out. This isn't good. The other thing that, that we can at least point out is that he lived in the ancient world and he had a disability. Uh, and there probably brought its own set of concerns um, and even further than that, when it comes to life in Israel, he really can't participate in most of what's going on. He actually can't be anointed, he actually can't serve in the temple, he actually can't serve uh, as a soldier in war and that puts him in an even less positive position. He's not a threat to the crown but he's also, as he even points out, what am I but a dead dog? It's a very low insult to himself. Why would you even pay mine to me? There's nothing to pay mine to. He doesn't even have a high self-esteem of himself. Oh, how how would David perceive this? Why would David even leave me around? And yet, David shows covenant faithfulness. David shows loving kindness, this steadfast love. He seeks him out. And when he finds him, he says, don't be afraid. I've got a lot to offer you. I know I bring up a lot some cultural issues uh, that we face in our world today. Of course the the two mortal sins I bring up over and over that exclusion is one of the mortal sins that that our culture has out there and the other one is uh, judgment, to not judge others. Let's just exclude exclusion for our conversation right now. Uh, I don't want to talk about that but when it comes to judgment uh, we do live in this culture and, and I can succumb to it just as easily uh, of don't judge me, you've got your own issues. I was watching a TV show with Stephanie just the other day, and that exact thing happened. Somebody was pointing out some things that needed to change, in somebody else, and the other person's like, well, don't judge me, you've got these 18 things wrong with you. Let me spell them all out for you, right? Deflect it. Functionally, what this does, in, in a lot of cases, is this works like a giant defense mechanism. Yeah, I recognize that you're catching that something's wrong with me, but I don't want to change it, so I'm going to point out something in you that's wrong, so I don't have to worry about it so I don't have to think about it, so I don't have to change, or at least I don't have to accept that you're telling me to change. But if I may point out another area where um, sometimes change is an issue and a concern uh, and has some similar characteristics in in an interesting way to what we're talking about today, in the Christian context, many of us have disciplines where we sit and we read Scripture, And we have our quiet times, and those are good things. I do it, many of you do it in the room. But we sit and we have our quiet times, and it's become such a routine that the word doesn't sink in anymore. It just kind of gets deflected, and we read it, and we move on. And in both cases, sometimes one thing that's that's very operative is that we don't want to change, we don't want to be challenged to change, and we fear. We fear that change, what that would bring on. We fear what God might bring in if we let certain passages really sink in and take hold. And we can theoretically know then who God is. We can theoretically know that God is love like we started. We can be told, if you want to know the definition of love, God is the definition of love. There's nothing better than God's love. God isn't like love. God is love. But have you experienced it? Is that your experience, that God is love? Or are you ever sometimes a little bit like Mephibosheth here, where it almost feels like God's love is so expansive except to reach out to this one area of my life, except to reach out to me in this particular way? We fear approaching God because of that. The truth of the matter is, God pursues you. That's good news this morning. We have a God who actually pursues us. That's good news. We don't have a God who says, uh, you know, you've got to do all the work and you come before me and you you put the offerings before me and maybe I'll accept it and maybe I won't. No, He is in pursuit of us. That's good news. This morning, but there's also truth that through my sin, your sin, the sins of everyone who's ever lived, we face the effects of sin in this world. And, brothers and sisters, we're all broken. We are. That's not an excuse to not fix something or allow God to fix it in us, but we're all broken. And one of the effects of that brokenness is that when somebody points out or when something points out an area of weakness, we respond fiercely. We defend ourselves, even though change might need to take place. We hide our weaknesses sometimes, or we just plain hide. Mephibosheth was hiding out of fear, right? Sometimes we just hide. Have you ever had one of these cases where an elephant in the room situation at work or something like that? Uh, maybe you're the boss, maybe the boss calls you in, and you know something's up in the air, and you walk in acting as if nothing's going on, or you've, you've experienced this. Hey, so what's up, boss? You know, Like nothing's going on, but you both know. Something's up. We hide our weaknesses sometimes, or the things that need to be fixed. Sometimes we hold our weaknesses against God, whether we realize it or not. God, why am I this way? God, why didn't things work out like I wanted? God, why did this tragedy strike? Why didn't you answer? We get we, we hold it against. God, but I'd like to point out, the man after God's own heart is the one who wrote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? When Jesus was on the cross, dying for you and me, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay to cry out and ask, God, I'm looking for you in these moments. It's, but we shouldn't hold the weakness against God. We should call him in when we sense that weakness, not fearing the change. And what's interesting and instructive from this story... Mephibosheth. If you consider the storyline, he could have blamed David for all of his problems. He really could have. His, His grandfather was insanely jealous and pursued David, tried to kill him lots of times, probably more than we get in the text. Jonathan then dies through all of this as well. Saul really takes it to his death. That's uh, essentially he, fighting and following and pursuing David is part of what brought about his demise, the main thing that brought his demise and that brought the disability of Mephibosheth. He could have held it against David, but instead, what is his response? He tentatively comes out of hiding and he approaches in humility. Okay, I'm going to face this. What is it that you're asking of, of me, David. So we can hide our weakness, we can hold our weakness against God, we can also try and justify our weakness, right? We try and compensate for our weaknesses by showing strength instead. Some other area of strength or portraying our weakness as a strength. There's the the story uh, is told of of two college students who uh, they had they didn't study for their final, and they faked having a flat tire and went to the professor and came to him and said, oh, we had a flat tire, so we couldn't make the uh, final. Can we take it tomorrow? Yeah, you come in tomorrow morning. They go in, he puts them in separate rooms. They flip over the paper. One one question on there, which tire? <laughs> we try and compensate for our weakness by showing our strength sometimes. We try, and, we try and make these negatives look like a positive. I just read a story last week of Uh, a a university professor who was trying to put forth the idea of having students submit their own grades at the end of the semester instead of him grading uh, so that they'd feel better about the matter. At that point you have to ask, why are we even doing this? But it it was uh, shot down by the university. But in business we do this, right? It's not what are your strengths and weaknesses, we have all kinds of other ways to say it in different ways. What are your strengths in areas of growth? That sort of thing. We try and Uh, sort of justify these weaknesses. I think this has a lot to do with some of our conversations on human sexuality. I think it has a lot to do with some of our conversations on our physical bodies, too. I mean, I have a sweet tooth. I could justify it. I tried to over the last week to justify why I've eaten so much extra sugar. Well, I just have a sweet tooth. Well, that just doesn't quite work. And you start to feel it. We're all broken. We are. Sin has broken us. We're all culpable in it. We've also been affected by things we didn't do. We're all broken in some way. Just like Mephibosheth has an obvious disability, we all have something that's wrong with us. Some of us, it's more obvious than others. There's a very fine article that John Weiborg, he's a covenant scholar, wrote a number of years ago on, on a theology of disability. And he quotes a woman who's a paraplegic, who's a believer, and she says, I'm living a resurrection faith in a Good Friday body. Do you hear that? I'm living a resurrection faith in a Good Friday body. I have the hope of the new heaven and the new earth and the resurrected body. I know it. It's in me. The power of the Spirit is in me. But while I'm in this life, until that day, I'm wounded. And I live with that, but I put my hope in Him. Resurrection faith in a Good Friday body. And God in his loving kindness has given us rescue, has given us that hope. But it sometimes takes a while for us to let that sink in, to let God's love actually seep in and come inside of us, to know that God is offering something good even when we feel broken, even when we fear. But it's worth dealing with what is broken in order to understand and experience God's best. We have a dog that we rescued a few years ago. Many of you have met the dog. Uh, She has a funky name for, at least many people think so, Thecla, she was an early Christian saint and I wasn't allowed to use that as a child's name so it became a pet name. So I got a whole list if you want to hear them later. But she's a whole digging, squirrel chasing dog. We enjoy the dog. But when we rescued her, she was very submissive and very afraid. It took her a good year to become normal. Now, she's still an awkward little dog, but we're an awkward family, so it fits in perfectly. It took her about a year to become normal with us and feel like she was comfortable. It takes a while sometimes for God's love to really sink in. And feel like this is something that we can take in and accept. And feel like when we have these areas of weakness and brokenness, that we can come before God without fear and offer those to God and say, okay, I know you're offering your love. I know you're offering your grace in this area. And I'm putting myself out there to be in your presence and to be repaired. There's an effect to our brokenness, but there's also an effect to God's loving kindness given towards us. If we turn to the, the larger story, the upper story over this, uh, we can see something, uh, we can say many New Testament passages, Ephesians 2 is what came to mind this week as we watch this play out. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, Paul writes to the church, he says, hey church, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He doesn't just say some of us, He says, all of us, church, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, that's our sinful nature, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace you have been saved. If you're hiding this morning, God sees you. And God pursues you. God is in pursuit of you and me. And that's good news this morning. One of my favorite things about how my wife, Stephanie, and I met. Uh, and, and ended up uh, dating and getting married. Is that there was some other guy. We were in college. There was some other guy that was interested in her. But he wasn't quite brave enough to pursue her. I'm thankful for that. And perplexed by that all at the same time. Uh, but Stephanie was in deep prayer at the time. Because she was a little distraught by this. And, and she also, as she prayed, she heard God answer her and say, You're going to know who I have for you when he pursues you. Don't pursue anybody. He's going to pursue you. And I came along, and I pursued her. <laughs> we have a God who does that. He, God pursues us. God doesn't just wait for us. He, God is in pursuit of you, even this morning, even right now, whether you realize it or not. Now, God is committed to you. Let's not make the cultural mistake that's out there, though, of just assuming that we're all very lovable people. Of course we are. And we all think, well, God already loves every one of us, so of course he's going to accept me, because who doesn't love me, right? Let's not think that this morning. God is not your butler. God is committed to you. God pursues you. God is calling for a response from you. This morning, So we have to answer the question, right? God is faithful and in pursuit of you, and in saving you, are you committed to God? That's what God's seeking from you this morning. I'm pursuing you, are you going to do the same with me? It's a covenant relationship. He seeks, he seeks to offer your, to fix your brokenness and offer wholeness and health. But we need to respond to be in on that. Continuing on, Ephesians 2, 6, and 7 gives us a little bit more of the promise that is to come. It says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God sees your spiritual hunger, and he offers real food. Not fake, not some parody, real food. After I got my master's degree, I worked at Starbucks. Uh, uh, This is years ago, that's when they came out with the breakfast sandwiches. They're good. Starbucks didn't pay me to say that. But they they touted that they were all real ingredients in those sandwiches. Real cheese, they said. And they said, that's how you're supposed to market it when you tell people that they're available. Hey, this has real cheese in it, you tell a customer. What have I I been eating all these years? Fake cheese? Like, what's with real cheese? Well, it's not processed. That's the difference. It's actually aged and, you know, all that stuff. It's not a parody of the real thing. It is the real thing. And sometimes we are offered fake food, junk food, in this world and told it's good stuff, told it's real. This is no meager meal we're offered in Jesus Christ. It's a feast. Eternal satisfaction in a world of new and better, and there will be something better next year that'll replace the thing this year. The new iPhone comes out on September 12th. You know what's gonna happen next year? Another new one will come out. A new Android phone comes out every other day, for goodness sakes. There's always going to be something new, right? We live in this world that's always telling us our satisfaction is here, but it'll be even better tomorrow. And we've lived through it, right? Eight tracks, bell bottoms, puffy vests, CDs, MP3 players, iPhones, you name it. Now we're back to stonewashed jeans. I thought we left the 90s. I don't know what happened, but God sees your hunger and offers real food. The other thing that we see from the story as, as we round this out is that Mephibosheth is given this invitation to eat at David's table. As one of his sons. Isn't that an amazing thing? Who can I show kindness to? This guy who's afraid for his life. You're going to sit at my table. I'm going to restore all your land and you're going to sit at my table as one of my son with all, sons with all the perks that comes along with that. All of it. You're part of my family. You see, God sees your need for belonging and gives you a family through Jesus Christ. And so hear the truth today. God pursues you. God is committed to you. God offers a loving kindness unlike anything the world can even hope to offer. God offers a feast in a world of junk food. God offers you a family in a world of need, uh, in a world in need of belonging. And the question comes to us, will you approach, Whether even if there's fear, will you approach and accept his invitation to eat at the king's table as one of his precious and beloved children? That's the offer we're given through Jesus Christ. Isn't that remarkable this morning? Even now, God pursues you to offer that. Let's pray together. Father, for those areas where there's fear within us, or even where there's pride, where we're afraid to hand over things to you, illuminate those areas in our lives where we need renovation, where we need a redo where we need some repair, where we need wholeness and health. And God, give us the strength through the power of your Spirit to offer those over to you. For those of us who have never experienced even an ounce of your redemption this morning, we pray, Father, that your Spirit would work on them and draw them into your presence through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your pursuit of us even when we're unfaithful to you. May we be ever more faithful, ever more aware of your pursuit of us. Ever more attentive to pursuing you. That we would be made holy as you are holy. We pray this in your name.